Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor for the journal Global Summetry, which can be found at the Global Summetry Project website. It is my pleasure today to uh, welcome back uh, Matthew Goodman from CSIS, a think tank in Washington. Matt and his colleagues have been doing some very good work on examining the efforts of the informals and some of the formal institutions to respond to the the COVID-19 pandemic. We also had the opportunity, by the way, once we were in the virtual studio, uh, to also talk about the uh, relationship between uh, the U.S. and China, which is clearly the, the leading states in the international system, and how their disruptive relationship has had a real impact on uh, global governance efforts. Matt is uh, currently a Senior Vice President, Senior Advisor for Asian Economics and holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy at CSIS. He has, in particular, uh, been involved in the G20 process. He was the YAC, which is the personal representative, to uh, the G20 Sherpa, and has a lot of knowledge and experience around uh, the efforts of the uh, informals to deal with global governance problems. So, let's welcome back Matt into the virtual studio to talk about the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Matt, it's evident we're in a rather dramatic uh, global event, that is the the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Broadly, do you think that the leading states and uh, the significant and Relative, relevant, sorry, international organizations have stepped up adequately to meet this unprecedented crisis? Um, not yet. I think at best um, the, the jury is out on um, how, if, how much that response has been um, uh, ex- extensive enough and certainly effective enough. Um, there have been some positive things. I think the central banks are stepping up mm-hmm. um, and providing liquidity and um, trying to uh, ensure enough dollars in the system that people need. Um, the IMF and the World Bank have made uh, big dollar uh, commitments of, of willingness to stand behind uh, countries, particularly lower income countries, and that's encouraging. The G20 has met both at the leaders and uh, finance ministers level, um, you know, uh, certainly an acknowledgement that this is a big problem and that they're willing in principle to do whatever it takes. Uh, not as much uh, detail and commitment and some other, you know, problems in what they've said uh, about uh, their response, but a uh, step in the right direction at least. So I'd say, you know, it's sort of glass half full. Uh, people are recognizing a problem and trying to uh, convene efforts to, to deal with this, but I'd say the bigger commitment that was made in 2008, 2009 is still missing, I think, at this point. Yeah, and I want to get back to that. Uh, but, you know, as you pointed out, we've had, well, we had the G7 foreign ministers meet, we had the G20 finance ministers meet, uh, the G20 trade ministers met uh, following the G20 leaders 
uh, gathering last week. I think it was uh, Thursday. And let's leaving aside for a second uh, the G20 leaders meeting. And of course, all these meetings are virtual. Obviously, there there's no in-person meetings. What can we say of the collaborative efforts of these uh, officials from the from those informals? Well, I think that um, you know, meeting is good. So, so at least uh, people are getting together, and you know, despite the constraints of of these uh, various um, lockdowns and and social isolation efforts. Uh, people are getting together by phone and by video conference and, and talking, and that's always a first step. Um, I'd say, you know, you see both the potential of those conversations and the um, inadequacies of them and where they're falling short. Uh, take the G7 foreign ministers that you mentioned. Um, you know, unfortunately, they, they uh, agreed apparently on some things, but then weren't able to issue a common statement, uh, a communique, um, on uh, how they were going to work together because of a dispute over the name of the uh, virus, because uh, mm-hmm. the U.S. was insisting it be called the Wuhan virus, and, and nobody else in the group wanted to call it that um, because they didn't think that was appropriate and antagonizing the Chinese and so forth. So, uh, so for that reason, it broke down, and that's you know very unfortunate. Um, G20. Similarly, you've had um, you know meetings and discussions, and I think the right framing of the issues broadly um, and touching on the right tools, but not really a, a sense of um, shared purpose and uh, kind of what I'm looking for is both the specifics and also a kind of sense that there is a whole that is greater than the sum of the parts here. Mm-hmm. If we can get together and, and do things jointly, that will um, be um, more powerful than even the, you know, the additive um, efforts that each country is doing anyway. So that was there in 2008, 2009, and is generally missing now. Okay. Uh, and it's true that the G20 leaders actually, I take it that the host, Saudi Arabia, issued that statement after the, uh, after the virtual meeting of the G20 uh, leaders. And of course, everybody uh, kind of pointed to the kind of bottom line statement, uh, the, the promise from the leaders to do whatever it takes. But my, my sense is, and I think you're confirming it, that there's no detail here. There's, it's just, you know, uh, we'll do whatever it takes. And then it kind of just ends in silence. I'll go from there and, and worse. In a couple of places, they said some things that were really I think not helpful, which we can get to, like on trade, for example. But but just on your your big point, I mean, the only really specific number in there, as I recall, was the five trillion dollars that they say they're going to inject in the global economy. Well, it's not really will inject. This is an agglomeration of the individual uh, announcements that have been made by individual countries, which add up if you use you know creative math to $5 trillion. It was reported early on as new money, uh, but in fact, it really isn't new money. And I think that is, um, I mean, some of the individual efforts are significant. I mean, the US $2.2 trillion right, right. is real money and it's you know historic contribution. But in the terms that we're discussing this, the, a group of countries representing you know 85% of the global economy getting together to tackle a common problem uh, you know, what you're looking for is, you know, you're looking for not only that basic statement of doing whatever it takes, uh, but, but, but some, you know, 
tangible evidence that the group together is going to do more than what you know the total of in of, of the individual country efforts would have been um, and that they're really you know rolling up their sleeves working together on these things learning from each other uh, and you just get a sense that it's sort of they're going through the motions but they're mm-hmm. not really uh, committed and, and there's some reasons for that because of fissures within the group I think fundamentally beyond the sort of the 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 long-standing challenges of G20 coordination. I think there's some particular fissures within the group that are uh, slowing the process down. Well, that, okay. Uh, and that takes me to kind of this, uh, you know, kind of comparison because, uh, again, you've watched these things closely. The, there seems to be an, an expressed view that, uh, you know, in contrast to the global financial crisis gatherings that occurred in 2008-2009, to this point, there has seemingly been little uh, that seems to match any of that kind of collective effort. What's the explanation here? You, you mentioned fissures. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. Well, I think, um, you know, there are a bunch of things have changed. I think that, um, you know, you have uh, 10, 12 years later, you have um, a um, much uh, different dynamic within the group among uh, particular members. So the U.S. is in a very different posture from the one it was in, you know, 10, 12 years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, where, um, you know, um, more focused on our own internal issues were less committed to multilateral endeavors like the G20. Um, and, you know, we got our own problems, as it were. Um, and then, you know, China is three times the size uh, it was in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and China's got its own problems. Uh, it's, it's dealing with uh, high levels of debt and um, uh, slowing growth and other challenges even before the, the coronavirus. And so it's not in the same posture. It doesn't have as much fiscal or monetary space as it had back then. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, there are a bunch of those kinds of issues for, for the individual leaders. And, and then it gets, I mean, that leads to uh, the fissures that I was alluding to. You know, the U.S. and China in 2008 were willing to put aside their differences, come together and say, this is a common challenge. We need to move uh, big, bold and fast. Uh, to deal with this. Um, that's really missing now uh, because both countries have been, you know, engaged in, a, in an ongoing escalating trade war. Uh, there's increasing mutual suspicion about technology-related issues. Um, there's, you know, great power competition, as it were. And, um, and so the two are just not ready to sit down and, and talk about this. There have been some hopeful signs in that regard in the last, you know, week or so, but, but back to when the leaders met and and still in the G20 context, I don't think you see that kind of coming together. And until the U.S. and China, the two largest economies in the world, put aside their differences and agree that they've got to tackle this kind of three-part set of crises because it's not only a financial crisis as it was in 2008, it's now a health, economic, and financial crisis. Um, uh, Until that happens, the rest isn't going to happen either. Um, meanwhile, there's some other fissures. So you have, you know, the famous Saudi-Russia split over oil production. Yeah. Uh, Saudi's the host, the Saudi Arabia is the host. And so the fact that they're being kind of unconstructive, if not actually damaging to the global economic order right now, 
through their ramping up of production, sort of to get back at Russia. Um, although there's been some positive movement apparently in that area as well in the last few days, but still, certainly when the leaders met, um, that was still festering mm-hmm. to the point that energy was not even mentioned in the um, in the statement uh, the other day, which is striking because energy is central to the global economy and is always mentioned. So. Um, and then you have divisions even within the G7, uh, you know, between Europeans and Americans over various issues. So it's, a, it's just not the same sense of um, common purpose that, that was there uh, 10, 12 years ago. Do you, do you think, I mean, we have had other difficult health uh, concerns, uh, you know, Ebola, SARS, and a variety of other um, epidemics, if not pandemics. Uh, but do you think that the fact that this is a, uh, as you call it, the, the triple whammy, but one of the key aspects is that it's a health crisis and you had a global financial crisis in 2008-9 and in some senses, in quotes, that seemed to fit uh, the G20 more precisely than uh, a health crisis, which is a whole new kind of world for for the G20 leadership. I think that's that's a fair point, and certainly, as as you know, the G20 started as a meeting of finance ministers and right. central bank governors, so it was in their sweet spot. It got elevated to the leaders' level in the middle of a financial crisis because it was fit for purpose in a way for for those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, you, as you say, you you know, at heart, this is a health issue. None of the other issues are going to go away until the health issue is addressed, mm-hmm. um, and um, and so this isn't. Uh, what the G20 was set up to do. But uh, since the G20 was formed, even mm-hmm. as a leader's process, there have been several um, big incidences, including um, including uh, Ebola, as you mentioned, and swine flu. Yep. Um, you know, before it became a, a leader's process, it was uh, there was SARS, which really got the international system uh, mobilized to try and figure out how to deal with these sort of uh, cross-border um, mm-hmm. pandemics. Um, and so there have been um, there have been synapses uh, developed in the G20 okay. uh, among health ministers um, and health officials uh, to uh, promote uh, health uh, pandemic pre- preparedness um, and response capabilities. Those are not nearly as developed as the financial and other synapses in the G20, uh, and they're not nearly as developed as they need to be. Um, but they are there, and you know there are some hopeful signs in that regard. The G20 leaders, in their statement the other day, mm-hmm. did um, direct the WHO, the World Health Organization, to report to health and finance ministers on their pandemic preparedness efforts and gaps and so forth. And so, you know, there is that direction coming, you know, to health officials in particular. Um, but, you know, in, you're right. Fundamentally, the G20 was not set up as a health organization. And this is something they've had to learn and develop as they've gone along. And I suppose uh, then just uh, maybe a little bit more broadly, if you're looking at the formal institutions for a moment and, and you look, obviously the WHO, which is the, the key health element, but also you know, uh, more on the financial side, the World Bank, the IMF, and then broadly, uh, more broadly, uh, security, there's the UN, of course, and the UN Security Council. 
Um, other than there's been a statement from the World Bank about you know the need to act, and 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 the WHO of course has been involved, although seems to have kind of gotten lost in all the shuffle in the last couple of weeks. Um, the the absence of the UN, I mean, it just you know it's breathtaking is a little too strong, but it's it's pretty. Eh, eh, significant that we've seen next to nothing and i take it partly that relates to the current um leadership at the u.n security council which has suggested uh that this is not a security issue i don't know where they're coming from on that one but it's china i take it who's who's got the seat as the president's seat um that you know again are we seeing the inadequacy here of kind of the global governance activity yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't spend as much time on the UN system per right, se. Right. Um, and so I, I can't really um, assess, you know, in detail uh, what is going wrong and why it's not working. But certainly, I mean, the UN comes to G20 meetings, they have participated in other crisis responses. We know not only peacekeeping related um, efforts, but um, even um, responding to health crises in the past and they've been an important player and a, by the way a player that moves faster in in some cases you wouldn't think so but they can move very fast in crisis on certain um you know emergency situations where where you know say the world bank is a little slower mm -hmm. uh, frankly um so you you do have um a real potential there there are i think fishers in that group and um and certainly the the great power competition which has you know been around for a long time but with its new dimension of a stronger China, um, a more sort of um, uh, mischievous Russia, uh, and and then a United States that's not as committed to uh, these processes is probably at the heart of the explanation as to why the UN has not uh, been front and center in this particular dynamic. And just a, a quick look at the kind of the regionals, and uh, most you know obviously the. The EU seems to be at at loggerheads. They had brought together a meeting of of the uh, of leaders, the twenty seven, and there was that kind of classic division between North and South. Uh, that seems to have occurred, partic particularly around this notion of multi multilateralizing the debt, right? The the so called Corona uh, bonds that they at least uh, examined. But I was also thinking. Have there been any initiatives, let's say, in regionally in Asia, either by way of ASEAN, the uh, the kind of the the ten Asian um, uh, partners, or APEC, which is of course a much, much broader. I've heard uh, next to nothing uh, from those folks. Is that you know they're just not they're not focused. They're not in the game. Yeah, I mean, I think on the EU side, uh, definitely there have been some. Um, the usual, as you say, traditional tensions between North and South, essentially what you're saying there is over, you know, the sort of collective responsibility for the, the for the, for the debt position of the, of the, um, of the grouping and, and, you know, where the Northern countries, Germany, Austria, Netherlands, maybe Finland is the other one of the, the sort of the, the fearsome four or whatever they're called, <laughs> fiscal four, fiscal um, four you know, yes. we're more prudent on these issues. Um, more prudent um, against, you know, the, the Mediterranean countries that, that want this more sort of uh, common effort, in this case now, the issuance of corona bonds, 
Um, that dispute is um, is still going on underneath all of this. And by the way, you know, the United States has had this debate too back in, you know, just watch Hamilton sometime. Um, and you'll see that we had a bit of this as well coming out of the Revolutionary War. So yeah, that was 200 years ago, mind you. Well, it was, but it's sort of familiar to us. Um, but, uh, but there is that. But then you've got this other maybe cross-cutting problem in the EU um, as well that's, that's newer, which is this rise of populism um, across Europe, particularly on the eastern flank. And I think that has... Um, led to a much difficult, more difficult time in getting countries to pull together on, on um, issues like this. And, you know, before the virus, the, the issue of, of, of Europe's relationship with China and with the United States, or the relationships, uh, plural, was, was a, a major kind of flashpoint um, in that dynamic um, between sort of West and East um, parts of um, and that's not, that's a little oversimplified, that geographical breakdown. But uh, just to make the point, you know, there was, uh, uh, there have been very different views across Europe on how to manage uh, those relationships. So you have, you have a bunch of things going on that are making Europe even less able to, oh, by the way, Brexit, <laughs> didn't even mention, you know, Brexit has also been a huge distraction, sure. has removed, you know, has removed from the EU one of the most powerful voices traditionally mm-hmm. for um, common efforts on global issues from, you know, fighting financial crises to dealing with global health and development issues. And Britain is, you know, distracted and sort of not at the table now in Europe. So, all of that is going on, making Europe much less um, less involved, less effective um, in mm-hmm. this particular crisis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what? And Asia, APEC. Uh. Yeah, with respect to the Asian organizations, I mean, I'm a big believer in those organizations, and I think uh, they don't get a lot of love here in Washington. But I actually think they're important, in, including just in narrow terms, in advancing U.S. interests. If we if we engage yep. in APEC and we engage with ASEAN, the Southeast Asian uh, countries, that's good for us. Um, mm-hmm. and we, we can get things done. Those things tend to be sort of a little longer term. They're not things, you know, APEC is not great at mobilizing in a crisis. It's not, again, mm-hmm. really designed for that purpose. ASEAN mm-hmm. famously got, you know, sort of um, challenges in mobilizing quickly on issues. So I'm not holding my breath for those Asian organizations to really step into the breach here. Um, I think it's it's really when you boil it down, you know, it's U.S. China first and foremost, and then the other um, big players, the G7 countries, and I include you know Canada in this is an important player in that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan, um, and then the Saudi Russia thing going on at the same time. So you have all these uh, players that that are distracted and doing other things, and they should be coming together as they did in 0809. Mm-hmm. take on you know this uh, you know this this three headed uh, challenge uh, just one last because I know of your interest in it has japan uh, you know kind of pressed forward at all you know and the reason I ask in part was because you know many of us kind of looked at uh particularly uh the uh negotiation over the t p p which was twelve and became uh, eleven because of President Trump and his decision to uh, resile from the agreement. And I think it took everybody to some degree by surprise that uh, Japan and Prime Minister Abe kind of uh, suddenly stood up and led the way uh, to complete 
that trade agreement. Uh, so one got a sense uh, of its willingness, of Japan's willingness to take a more uh, formative role uh, uh, in organizing a collective effort. So I wonder if they're there at all this time. Japan has been a really important player in global governance uh, for the last uh, several years, including the TPP example you gave, but I'd also cite uh, their work on quality infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, they got the G20 to agree on principles of um, high quality infrastructure in their Osaka host year last year, mm-hmm. um, or in data governance, uh, data free flow with trust, this slightly uh, clunky concept of, uh, that the Prime Minister Abe came up with, but yeah. a useful contribution to the international debate. Um, or, you know, longer term, they've been very, um, very, uh, they've been really leaders in global health. Um, issues. Um, they, they really introduced um, these issues when they hosted, I think, a couple of G8 cycles um, ago, 2000. Mm-hmm. And so they've been, they've been real champions of, of a lot of the issues that are relevant here. I think in the recent uh, crisis, the problem has been, Japan's been sort of distracted by, first of all, its own economic problems because you know, they had a really bad fourth quarter mm-hmm. uh, long before the crisis, the health crisis. Um, because they imposed a new consumption tax and, you know, growth has been challenging in Japan anyway. Right. Um, and then you had, um, you know, the virus on top of that and they had, you know, virus related distractions uh, domestically. They were the first country really beyond China that got hit by this. Right. Um, strangely, they haven't been as effective in terms of cases. But and then they had the Olympics. And, you know, I think Abe, Prime Minister Abe, was very focused on trying to preserve the Olympics. And that sure. was a distraction. So they haven't, in this particular crisis, stepped up in the same way that they have in some of those other issues. But to be fair, they've made strong statements about the need for international coordination and, um, you know, in both the G7 and a G20 context. And so, you know, I think Japan's an important player here as the third largest economy in the world. Okay. Uh, so... So, I mean, you just you sketch out, I guess, would be the best way to describe it, the kind of global governance system, which seems to have, uh, your, from your perspective, kind of the two leading states, U.S., China, and then the large uh, uh, countries, both um, uh, established and, and large emerging market countries. And then, you know, the uh, other significant players that are part of the G20 or the G7 or whatever. Um, yeah, it's interesting uh, in a way. I mean, there seems to be a, a split, and I wanted you to speak to it, uh, between this notion that we are not, we cannot move forward on global governance issue unless the guys at the top really press the envelope. There is a, a, a counter view, uh, I must admit, by some of us in the Vision 20 who talk about um, effective multilateralism and, and and promote the willingness of Japan to take action, as we talked about it, or in fact, uh, you know, the French and the Germans to take action to stop the Americans in the global governance arena from being unwilling uh, to maintain the Paris uh, climate change accord in the leader's statement. So, you know, there are and there are these kinds of I call them, for lack of a better term, shoots of of that kind of effective multilateralism, which does not uh, rely on our good friends, uh, either China or the United States, uh, I take it you just think that at the end of the day, global governance can't advance unless you have 
those guys at the top kind of pushing the envelope? Well, I, I think that, um, that there is a lot that can be done in uh, global governance um, by, you know, the players that you mentioned stepping up and taking uh, the bull by the horns and taking on certain issues um, right. where, where others are not, you know, where the big powers are not willing to cooperate. Um, I think that, A, I think it's very issue specific. I think some issues that's going to be more promising than others that are more inherently sort of um, involve everybody and require everybody to be um, supportive or it can really undermine the, the efforts of the other group um, mm -hmm. or where, you know, where you really need somebody at the end of the day at the microphone with the gavel who, you know, not only has the sort of capacity and the willingness to, um, you know, to sort of slam their fist on the table, but, you know, but has that, sort of that um, fear factor as well. And, and that's, a, I think, a real dynamic, in my view, on a lot of issues. There may be some issues, and you can make a certain amount of progress. Um, and then I guess my final point would be, I would distinguish um, crisis response from sort of business as usual. I, right. There may be more things that could be done um, across different issues in normal times. I think in a crisis, uh, especially when numbers matter so much, I mean, like dollar numbers, at the end of the day, if the big players are not there at the table, you know, being willing to, to put their own, uh, you know, resources on the table and, and cajole others and sort of insist or intimidate others into doing the same, I think, uh, and with an ability to move quickly and all that stuff, I think it's much harder. So I think, I think I'm particularly uh, emphasizing the point in a crisis that you really need the U.S. and China and the other big players to you know, to work together. In normal times, you might be able to get some things done in some areas, so I'm not mm -hmm. totally dismissive of that, okay. you know, that concept. Okay. Uh, well, then the kind of the final big question. Clearly, the virus isn't going to disappear anytime too quickly. Uh, so I guess um, I'm wondering, are you at all hopeful then that <clears throat> these early efforts um, of the G20 or the G7 and various other um, groups um, are, can be more concerted. Are you hopeful that they may make greater effort w with the continua continuation of the crisis, the pandemic? I mean, it's, again, it's not going away any too quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are some hopeful shoots, as you said, or sprouts or whatever shoots, that, yes. are, 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 uh, that I'm certainly watching. Like, I mean, even the U.S. and China, the health ministers are talking and President Trump's been very complimentary and express confidence in Xi Jinping, yes. the president of China. Um, and so you hope that that's going to build into something. You've had transshipments of masks and ventilators and other equipment that's been, um, you know, even where uh, where um, there's been some political tensions. We got a big shipment from China right. and from yeah. Russia the other day. Mm -hmm. Now some of that, especially the Russian one, may be more propaganda than real uh, offer of support. But... Uh, but it was real stuff. And, um, you know, I think there's something to build on there. So um, there's all of that. And I do think that as the crisis uh, remains a, a serious health crisis and continues to, to, to roll out and um, cause damage just as a health crisis, uh, and then as a, an emerging economic and financial crisis, there's just the, the incentives for countries to come together and work together uh, uh, are just much higher uh, than um, 
you know, with every passing day. And so I, it gives me hope that at some point we'll, we'll move beyond our sort of dug in positions, mm-hmm. but not to end on a, on a, a more sort of jaded note, but I, I do worry whether the United States is really, um, you know, willing, ready and able to step up and play at least the traditional role that it's usually played of, of being the kind of the, the convener and the driver of a lot of these initiatives. I just, I think we're, we're doing some things now because we have to, but I'm, we're not really, uh, I think, feeling it and, uh, and, and stepping up in, in the kind of way with the kind of credibility and conviction that we've traditionally had. So that worries me in and its own right. Um, and until that's fixed, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be very difficult for um, these global governance um, organizations to really um, have an effective response. Yeah, and I take it that you, you, what you're pointing to is this current administration that this, that, you know, that this administration really has <clears throat> not had multilateralism in, in its sights at all. And of course, the the disputes uh, with China have been very real and uh, very uh, um, damaging, I suspect, uh, uh, on the relationship. I mean, some things will change, some things won't change in a post-Trump America. And even if that happens next January, I think you will. I think the thing that is most likely to change is the instinct uh, to work with um, other countries to address common challenges. I think that will be there, the willingness. I think the questions to me are whether uh, we're going to have other constraints, you know, because because people look at us differently now, because we still have capacity problems dealing with these problems ourselves, and you know the problems that existed before the virus. Uh, mm-hmm. We still have, you know, even if um, uh, Vice President Biden gets elected president, it's going to be by you know probably not more than you know fifty five, forty five would be a landslide, and you'd still have a large number of Americans who weren't going to be um, thrilled to, you know, very good chance that the uh, Republican Party is going to hold on to the Senate. So we're going to have political challenges. I mean, there are going to be a number of things that are going to make it hard for the U.S. to just return to all of a sudden, you know, Bretton Woods and the Marshall Plan and things. That's, I wouldn't hold my breath for that. But, but at least our instinct, our impulse will be, you got a common transnational problem. You know, mm-hmm. we got to get with our allies first and foremost, and then with others who are willing to join us in trying to take on these issues. And I think that's going to be a very uh, a positive a change if it happens. And I'm still, I'm certainly not going to predict it will happen uh, uh, as soon as next January. But uh, if it does, I think it'll be a big change. Well, thank you, Matt, for uh, taking time away from uh, a, a busy schedule, uh, particularly in the midst of the, the virtual world that all of us are now in, in terms of meetings and whatever. Thank you, though. And uh, we look forward to a time which is hopefully a little bit more healthy. Uh, Happy to do it. Um, always um, enjoy talking about these issues, especially with you, Alan. So thank you for inviting me. And um Pleasure. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. So uh, <laughs> I'm isolating. I'm isolating. <laughs> but uh, but do stay healthy and safe. And uh, yeah, and same. Hope, uh, Keep well. Again.